The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Brian Lichty, and I serve here at the North Campus as the pastor for counseling. And this week, we are going to take one more turn at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at one final passage. And then next week, we will be returning in our series in the book of Daniel. So you'll want to make sure to be back for that. Before we do anything else, let's ask the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, when we say that we're going to pray to you and ask for your help, that's not a throwaway phrase. We mean it because we need your help. We need your help to understand what this passage is saying. We need your help to be excited about your truth. And we need your help, most importantly, to see and savor Jesus above all. So please, Father, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to preach to you a sermon that I've entitled, The Resurrection of Believers from the Dead. Now, some of you might be thinking, really, Pastor Brian? You're going to preach a message about that? I mean, that's kind of abstract, isn't it? And is it really that important anyway? I mean, it's not like it's a, you know, core doctrine of the faith. It's not as if the the resurrection of believers from the dead is somehow connected to the gospel. Well, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the resurrection of believers from the dead is one of the core doctrines of the faith, and it is directly connected to the gospel. In fact, I would argue that this is a first-order doctrine. It's a first-level doctrine. In other words, similar to the doctrines of the Trinity or the deity of Jesus— This is something, as a Christian, that you must believe in. That's why, for instance, it's included in our congregational affirmation of faith. And so every person who becomes a member here at Bethlehem, you just saw that happen this morning, they are ascribing to that reality. They are affirming that truth. Not only that, that's why it's part of the Apostles' Creed, which Christians for centuries from all sorts of denominations have been affirming. So again, the resurrection of believers from the dead is not a peripheral doctrine. It's not a side issue. It's important. It's central. I would even say it's necessary. In fact, I think this is why the Apostle Paul spends so much time in 1 Corinthians 15 defending this doctrine. And it's actually something uh, that we started to look at last week. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look back to verse 12 for a second. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And and the reason Paul raises this question is because there were some Corinthians who denied their bodily resurrection. You see, they actually believed that Jesus rose from the grave. That was part of the message that they received from Paul. They believed that Jesus rose from the grave, and and that was part of what led them to be saved. But they were denying that they would be raised from the dead. In all likelihood, that's because they were influenced by Greco-Roman thinking. 
that the body is inferior to the soul and has no future beyond the grave. And so what does Paul do about this? Does he say, ah, it's okay, no worries. Does he say, ah, it doesn't really matter whether or not you affirm and believe in the resurrection of believers from the dead? No, he, he defends this doctrine. He teaches them what it means. He actually invests time and energy to show them that the resurrection of believers from the dead is not only important, it's necessary. And so what does he do? In verses 13 to 19, he does this by showing the logical and unfortunate consequences of their thinking. He explains if they don't believe in the resurrection of believers from the dead— then Jesus himself wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then everything falls apart. Our faith, our hope, you name it. It's all false and pointless. And then, as we move into our passage here in verses 20 to 28, Paul takes sort of a different approach. Instead of showing the consequences of their thinking, he explains two reasons why the resurrection of believers from the dead must be true. In other words, he explains two reasons why the resurrection of believers from the dead is necessary. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two reasons why believers must, they must, rise from the dead. And as we do that, we will not only see the necessity of the believer's resurrection, but of Jesus's. And so first this morning, in verses 20 to 23, Paul shows the Corinthians that believers must rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead, and we're united to him. Again, believers must rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead, and we are united to him. So let's look at these verses and see how this all unfolds. Beginning in verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul starts off by stating a fact, right? It's something he's already proclaimed. It's something he's basing his life on. He's saying, in fact, Christ has been raised. And again, they would not have argued with that point. They believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Yet the problem was they denied their bodily resurrection that would take place in the future. And so what Paul does here is he helps them to see that there's a connection between their resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. These are two things that are completely inseparable. They're connected. He helps them to see that the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of Jesus are two things that are part of the same event. Another way you could put it, the resurrection of believers from the dead is an inevitable consequence of Jesus's resurrection. And the way Paul explains this, at least the way he starts to explain it, is by using the metaphor of first fruits. And this metaphor of first fruits, uh, if you're thinking, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, right? Every year there would be an annual offering of first fruits as an act of thanksgiving to the Lord. But when Paul uses this metaphor, his focus isn't on first fruits as an offering or even as an act of thanksgiving. Instead, his focus is on the relationship between first fruits and the rest of the harvest. In particular, 
Paul's emphasizing that the first fruits serve as a kind of guarantee that the rest of the harvest will follow. You see, when a crop is planted, it takes time to grow and eventually become ripe. And when that entire crop is ripe, then it's ready to be harvested. It's ready to be picked and gathered and enjoyed. And the way that you know that it's almost time to gather that crop, when that crop is all ripe, is because you've seen some first fruits. You've already seen a portion of that crop that has become ripe. So those first fruits serve as a signal and a guarantee that the rest of the crop will be ripe soon. Those first fruits give assurance that a full harvest is on its way. And so think about this uh, maybe if you plant uh, strawberries. If you plant a garden full of strawberry plants, that first ripe strawberry lets you know that more ripe strawberries are coming. It guarantees you and assures you that more ripe strawberries will follow. And so it's the same with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits. It's a signal. It's a guarantee. It's an assurance that a greater resurrection harvest will follow. So contrary to what the Corinthians believed, Jesus' resurrection is directly connected to theirs. His resurrection guarantees their resurrection. Because he rose bodily from the grave, they will rise bodily from the grave. As verse 20 says, all of those who have fallen asleep, that is, all believers who have died, will receive a resurrection body. And at this point, the Corinthians were probably wondering, why us? Why is it that we get to be part of that harvest? Why is it that that our resurrection from the dead is connected to Jesus's resurrection from the dead? Well, the reason their resurrection is connected to Jesus's is because they're united to Christ. In other words, by grace, through faith, they've been inseparably connected to the person and the work of Jesus. And this is something that Paul talks a lot about in his letters. In fact, just consider these words from Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And then listen to this, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, the, the reason that the Corinthians' resurrection from the dead and Jesus' resurrection from the dead is connected is because they're one with him. They are united to their Savior. And so to help the Corinthians understand this, Paul shares an analogy. He actually shares a comparison between Adam and Christ. And that's what he does in verses 21 and 22. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So first, let's, let's think about Adam here. Uh, most of us know that Adam was the first person that God created. 
And when Adam rebelled against God, sin and death entered the world. That's why in verse 20, Paul says, by a man came death. But here's the thing. When Adam acted, when he rebelled, he did that as the head of humanity. So he did that as our representative. And because he was our representative, Adam's fate becomes our fate. So because every single one of us as humans are united to Adam, we will all die. That's why Paul says in verse 21, in Adam, all die. Because we're connected and united to Adam as our representative, we will share in his fate. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story, right? Because a little over 2,000 years ago, there was another man who came into this world. And unlike Adam, he was the exact opposite. Instead of rebelling against God, he was the perfect son. Instead of establishing a legacy of death, he established a legacy of resurrection. That's why Paul says in verse 20, By a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. And it gets even better. When Jesus acted, when he obeyed, he did so as the head of a new humanity. In other words, he became the representative for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And as the representative of believers, Jesus's fate has now become our fate. His destiny has now become our destiny. That's why in verse 21, Paul says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So because we as believers are connected to Jesus as our representative, our fate is the same as his. And that means because he rose, we too will rise from the grave. And think about that for a second. I mean, that that is an amazing, astounding reality. Brothers and sisters, that means we're going to be part of this new humanity. We already are if we're in Christ. That means we share in every blessing that Christ earned on our behalf as our representative. Again, his fate becomes our fate. His destiny becomes our destiny. Because Jesus rose from the dead and we're united to him, we too will rise from the dead. But of course, this this begs the question, when? When is this going to happen? When will those who are in Christ be made alive, as verse 22 says? Well, there is a sense in which we have already been spiritually raised from the dead. There's a sense in which we've already had a spiritual resurrection. That's what Scripture talks about when it uses language such as born again or regeneration. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 when he says that God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So again, there is a sense in which we have already experienced a spiritual resurrection in Jesus. But the resurrection of our bodies won't happen until Jesus returns. And that is what Paul makes very, very clear in verse 23. Notice what he says there. He says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So in other words, uh, the resurrection of Jesus 
and the resurrection of believers takes place at different times. As Paul says, there's a, an order or a sequence to these resurrections. So Christ's bodily resurrection has already taken place as the first fruits, and our bodily resurrection will take place when he returns. So again, what we see in these verses, in verses 20 to 23, is that there is an inseparable connection between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. In other words, you really can't have one without the other. Either they're both true or they're both false. That's why in verses 13 and 16, Paul said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And that's why he says here in verse 20 that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So again, believers must rise from the dead. It's a necessity. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and we are united to him. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I am really looking forward to that reality. I am really looking forward to the resurrection of believers from the dead. And one of the great things about it is that when that happens, we will have a body that's just like Jesus's resurrected body. Think about it again. Think about that, that metaphor of first fruits. When you pick the first fruits of a crop, it not only guarantees that more is coming, it guarantees that more of the same is coming. In other words, the first fruits are a guarantee of the quality and the likeness of what's to follow. So go back to those strawberry plants. If the first fruits of those strawberry plants are, are really red and sweet and juicy strawberries, you know that more red and sweet and juicy strawberries are coming. Again, make no mistake about it. Our resurrection bodies will be just like Jesus's resurrection body. As Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's exciting. It's amazing. And, and according to what Paul says later in this chapter, it means several things. It means, first of all, that our our resurrection bodies will be imperishable. So no more death. Like we will live forever with God. They will be fit for the new heavens and new earth. So nothing, nothing will stop us from enjoying fellowship with God. Not only that, according to Paul, our bodies will be raised in glory. In other words, whatever dishonor our bodies brought during this life, that'll be gone in the next. So there won't be anything to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of. Instead, our resurrected bodies will be full of beauty and splendor, really in many ways beyond what we can imagine. As one commentator said, our bodies will be gloriously attractive. Paul also says that our bodies will be raised in power. Our bodies will be raised in power. That means no more sickness, no more illness, no more injuries, 
No more fatigue. So, so cancer, gone. Broken bones, gone. Sleepless nights, gone. Panic attacks, gone. Doctor's visits, gone. All of it gone because we will have bodies like Jesus's that are raised in power. It's amazing. And then finally, Paul says our resurrection bodies will be spiritual bodies. And when he says spiritual bodies, later in 1 Corinthians 15, he's not saying they will be non-physical. He's saying they will be characterized by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to that. I am looking forward to having a body that will only and always mediate the fruits of the Spirit rather than the deeds of the flesh. So again, brothers and sisters, we have something to look forward to. Just like Jesus rose from the grave, we will rise from the grave. And when we do, we will have a body that is just like his. That is a guarantee. Well, second, and finally this morning, in verses 20 to 28, Paul shows the Corinthians another reason why believers must rise from the dead. Believers must rise from the dead so that God's purposes in Christ are fulfilled at the end of history. Again, believers must rise from the dead so that God's purposes in Christ are fulfilled at the end of history. Beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So in verse 24, Paul introduces two events that are going to happen at the end of history. The destruction of every rule, power, and authority, and him delivering the kingdom to God the Father. And at first glance, it kind of seems like Paul's, you know, going on a tangent here, or as if he's switching topics. I mean, you were just talking about the resurrection, and now you're talking about, you know, destruction of powers and delivering of the kingdom. Like, well, what's going on? Well, Paul has a reason for doing what he's doing. In fact, what he says here in verse 24 is directly related to what we just saw. Remember, In verses 20 to 22, Paul explained there's an inseparable connection between our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. And then in verse 23, he explained that there's an order or a sequence to those resurrections. Well, what Paul is doing here in verse 24, he's adding to that order. He's adding to that sequence. So Christ was raised from the dead a little over 2,000 years ago. And then at his coming, we will rise from the dead. And then these two final events will occur. The destruction of every rule, power, and authority, and the delivering of the kingdom to the Father. So Paul wants us to see that these events are directly connected to each other. And of course, Jesus' resurrection is what starts it all. Right? His resurrection is the catalyst for all these other events that are to take place. In some ways, these events are like dominoes, and Jesus' resurrection is like the finger that sets it all into motion. So starting it all off, Jesus' resurrection from the dead leads to our resurrection from the dead at his return. And then next domino, 
our resurrection from the dead at his return leads to the destruction of every rule and power and authority. And then next domino, the destruction of every rule and power and authority leads Jesus to deliver the kingdom to the Father. Now, some wonder if there is kind of a a large time gap between verses 23 and 24. Although that's not my understanding, it is possible. But what I think we really have to keep in mind here is that Paul is not giving an exhaustive teaching of the end times. So notice here in this passage, there's no mention of final judgment, which will happen. There's no mention of Satan being cast into the lake of fire, which will happen. Nor is there any mention of unbelievers uh, having to face eternity in hell, which will happen. Instead, what Paul is doing is focusing on two events at the end of history that follow the resurrection of believers from the dead at Jesus' return. So he's focusing on those last two dominoes. And that begs a really, really important question. What's he talking about exactly? What are these dominoes? What are these last two events? Well, thankfully, the rest of our verses help to clarify what he's talking about. In verses 25 through 27, Paul clarifies what he means by the destruction of every rule and power and authority. And then in verse 28, Paul clarifies what he means by Jesus delivering the kingdom to the Father. And so let's look at each of these events, or dominoes, if you will, in turn. In verses 25 to 27, Paul clarifies what he means by the destruction of every rule and power and authority. And so beginning in verse 25, he says that he, referring to Jesus, must reign until he, which probably refers to God the Father, has put all enemies under his feet. And when Paul says that, he's actually borrowing language from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is a royal psalm. It's about a human king from the line of David who would establish God's kingdom and be exalted to his right hand. It's about a human king that would be given authority to rule and reign over God's creation until every enemy was made a footstool for his feet. And of course, this human king, this Davidic king, is none other than Jesus himself. So when Paul talks about the destruction of every rule and authority and power in verse 24, he's saying these are the enemies that must be brought into subjection under the Messiah. They must. Now, one of the things that gets a little bit tricky, and there's a lot of tricky things in this passage, is that Paul doesn't, at least initially, uh, come right out and define what he means by every rule and authority and power. He might be referring to demonic rule and authority and power, or he might be referring to some kind of earthly rule and authority and power. But based on the context, I think it's sa- safe to say he's at least referring to death as a rule and authority and power. After all, in verse 26, Paul specifically says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in verse 26, Paul is drawing our attention to death as one of our greatest enemies. And, you know, that's something that I think a lot of times we forget about. And our culture certainly doesn't understand. 
Sometimes we think of, of death almost as kind of this friend, right? It's going to kind of welcome us into the wild blue yonder. That's not the case. Death is our enemy. It represents the, the pain and the futility and the frustration that we face in this fallen world. Not only that, death is God's enemy. It corrupts God's good creation, and it threatens his purposes. So the reality is death must be dealt with in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled. Death must be brought into subjection to the Messiah. So how does that happen? Well, it's important to know that death was defeated. It was conquered when Jesus died on the cross 2,000-some years ago. That's what Colossians 2 says. When it says that Jesus nailed our debt to the cross, and in doing so, disarmed the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them. So death was defeated when Jesus took our place on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. That's when it happened. He conquered death. He conquered his enemies then. And in many ways, Jesus' resurrection is the announcement of that victory. It's the public declaration that Jesus was, in fact, God's appointed Messiah, and that he did, in fact, defeat death and every enemy that we could ever face. But as you and I know, even though death has been defeated at the cross, it's still a reality in this world, isn't it? It's still a force, you could say, to be reckoned with. So even though death has been defeated and victory over it is secure, that defeat hasn't been fully realized or experienced yet. Even though death has been defeated, it hasn't been completely abolished or destroyed, as verse 24 says. And again, that's why Jesus must reign until God puts all his enemies under his feet. That's why verse 27 goes on to talk about God subjecting all things under Christ's feet. So every enemy, including death, must not only be defeated, but must be abolished and destroyed for God's purposes in Christ to be fulfilled. And so how does that happen? How does God abolish and destroy the last enemy of death? How does God put death in subjection under Christ's feet? Well, God does that by resurrecting believers from the dead at Jesus' return. That's how he does it. Again, remember the dominoes. Jesus' resurrection is the catalyst. He's the finger, if you will, that sets all of these events into motion. So Jesus' resurrection is what leads to our resurrection at his return. And then our resurrection at his return is what leads to the destruction of every rule and power and authority. And in fact, Paul actually makes this explicit Later on in this chapter, look, look just for a moment. Look down at verses 53 to 55. Notice what Paul says there. He says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. It must. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And then notice this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
So again, the last enemy to be destroyed, to be abolished, is death. And that happens either the very moment that that God resurrects believers from the dead or as a direct consequence from it. Either way, the resurrection of believers from the dead at Jesus' return is absolutely necessary. It's non-negotiable. It must happen. And as we've talked about, this is what the Corinthians failed to understand. They didn't understand that believers must rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead and they're united to him. Nor do they understand that believers must rise from the dead so that God's purposes in Christ are fulfilled at the end of history. Think about it this way. If believers don't rise from the dead, then death wins. And death holds sway as a power over God. If believers don't rise from the dead, then God fails to bring everything into subjection under Jesus' feet. So again, the resurrection of believers from the dead, it's not a peripheral doctrine. It's absolutely necessary. That's why Paul's defending it so hard here. That's why he's giving so much room to it in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, there's one more domino here in our passage to discuss. One more event at the end of history that Paul mentions in verse 24, where Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father. And let me just say for the record, this is really complex. All right, even though uh, Paul, I think, clarifies some of what he means in verse 28, I'll just admit, I don't fully understand it. And so let me just briefly highlight three things that I think are clear. First, it's clear from verse 24 that Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father after the destruction of every rule and authority and power. In other words, this is the last domino in the series of events that Paul is talking about. So this delivering of the kingdom, this transfer, will only happen after death is destroyed and every enemy is subjected to Christ. It will only happen after God's purposes in Jesus as the Messiah, are fulfilled. Second, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, there clearly is some sort of transition in the way that God's kingdom is being ruled. There's some sort of transition there. Now, what that transition is, I'm not exactly sure. My best guess is that it's talking about a transition from the messianic kingdom to the eternal kingdom. In other words, because God's purposes in Jesus as the Messiah are fulfilled, Jesus now hands back the kingdom to God the Father. And that seems to line up with the rest of Scripture, where we know it was God the Father who granted Jesus as the Messiah that kingdom to begin with. But this is important. Even though Jesus hands back the kingdom to the Father and subjects himself to the Father in his role as the Messiah, that does not mean that Jesus has stepped off the throne, nor does it mean that Jesus is somehow less than God. Based on other scriptures, I think it's safe to say that Jesus, who's not only the Messiah, but the eternal Son of God, will reign equally and forever with God the Father. As Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. The throne of God and the Lamb. Well, then third and finally, a 
according to verse 28, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, it will result in God being all in all. So after all these dominoes fall, what's the end result? God will be all in all. And that doesn't mean that God is everything or that everything is God. Paul's not endorsing pantheism here. It means that God is supreme. He's supreme over all, and his supremacy is fully and finally established. Because God's purposes in Jesus as the Messiah have been fulfilled and every enemy has been subdued, God will be shown as the one who's supreme over all. So at the end of time, God's reign and his rule will be established forever. So everything fully and finally comes under his authority. And his rule will never be threatened again. Never. He's supreme. He's supreme over all. Brothers and sisters, that should cause us to rejoice. It's remarkable. It should cause us to to worship and celebrate and give praise to God. After all, he wins. He's victorious. He's, He's undefeated and he's undefeatable. And because of his victory through Jesus over sin and death and Satan, we as his people get to experience everlasting joy with God for eternity, forever. We get to experience unending blessing under his loving rule. That's reason to give praise. That's reason to rejoice. Not only that, but as we consider God's supremacy, it should give us purpose. It should give us purpose. After all, why are we here? What should we be about? Why do we exist? We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all people through Jesus. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. And that's what 1 Corinthians is pointing us towards. That's what's going to happen at the end of it all. God will be supreme. A day is coming, brothers and sisters, when God's supremacy will be established and demonstrated once and for all. And so let's live with that reality in mind. Let's make decisions in light of God's supremacy. Let's let's raise our children in light of God's supremacy. Let's spend our money in light of God's supremacy. Let's work and play and rest and do everything in light of God's supremacy. That's why we're here. That's what all of history is pointing towards. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot to look forward to. We will rise from the grave. And death will be abolished. And when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God back to the Father, he will be all in all. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. His resurrection gives us confidence that we will be resurrected and death will be abolished and that you will be all in all. So God, help us to be excited about these future realities. Cause them to enliven our hearts and stir our faith. May they lead us now to worship and exalt in Jesus, our great Redeemer, 
and our victorious King. Oh, Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.